As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters working, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road. You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 SM, your home for community radio. Are you ready? Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Gary Tinney. And I'm sitting in for Tom Ficklin. Um, I would like to introduce you to Jeffrey Fletcher, the founder of the Ruby Calvin Fletcher Afro-American History Museum. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Gary. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, if you could uh, please introduce yourself. Yes, sir. I am, as uh, your host, Gary Tenney, has mentioned, I am Jeffrey Fletcher. I am the president of the African-American Collections Incorporated, which is a 501c3, and also the executive director of the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African-American History Museum, located at 952 East Broadway, Stratford, Connecticut. Thank you. So uh, let's start off with, uh, just tell me a little bit about your journey. Um, I was, uh, fortunately, I was able to uh, visit the museum uh, numerous times and uh, I can't tell you how taken back I was by, you know, visually and, and what I heard from you and the history of the museum. It just, uh, it really, uh, I learned a lot. So if you could just walk us through your journey and tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so, um, you know, it's, uh, it's basically a passion. It has turned into a passion, but then I've learned that it also turned into a, journey involving history, but as well as family legacy. So this all started, as for those that don't know uh, who I really am and where I came from, um, I grew up in a small rural community in southeastern uh, Connecticut called Colchester, Connecticut. And a lot of folks may not know where that is, but it's tucked away up by Norwich and New London and Ledger in the casinos. And my parents, Ruby and Calvin, uh, they migrated from the South, South Carolina and North Carolina. My mom from Camden, South Carolina, my dad from a place uh, called Fuquay, Farina, North Carolina. But, you know, their journey to get here was part of the, the great black migration uh, as African-Americans were, were fleeing the South due to Jim Crow laws, segregation, housing and um, unemployment rates uh, were skyrocketing. So they made the journey across this country, many African-Americans, and they landed to where they are today. Many folks, as we know, in New Haven had done the same thing my parents did on that journey from South Carolina. But they met in Colchester, where they raised four children. But the interesting part about this story and this journey was that my mom, who grew up in Camden, South Carolina, and if you're familiar with the logo of the museum, you'll see a tree, but you'll see a shack. And that shack is indicative of where um, my mom grew up in Camden, South Carolina on a sharecropper's farm with her seven brothers and sisters and my grandparents. And um, the tree represents the elm tree, Connecticut elm tree, uh, which they are now in turn in uh, Colchester in, in our local cemetery there. So there was a beginning and there was an end, but the end didn't stop there because when my mom passed, who was the main motivator of this museum and for me to do it, the passion and legacy, she was a collector at, at an early age in growing up in the South. And she collected a lot of objects, man, a lot of your our black families would have seen um, these objects um, they would have seen these objects in uh, their grandparents, great-grandparents' homes, salt, pepper shakers, and a lot of ephemeral type of objects. And my mom collected this stuff, not knowing what it will, where it would end up some 40, 50 years later. But uh, as she collected these objects, it meant something to her. And uh, upon her passing, um, I inherited the uh, collection, which was about 450 objects. 
And uh, to this day, I've amassed about 12,500 pieces of artifacts that I have collected throughout the 15 years um, after retirement from the city of New Haven Police Department. So this journey started uh, back in the 1930s with my parents and it ended up in my hands. And here we are in Stratford, Connecticut, uh, where this museum is now officially located. And it is the first African-American history museum of its type in the Northeast. If you could uh, identify that defining moment when you said to yourself, I'm going to make this happen, I'm going to move forward on this. Well, I mean, uh, part of the question I got, I heard the last part of it, the identified yeah. questions. I, yeah, I'll repeat. Um, if you could identify that defining moment when you said, OK, I'm going to take this on, I'm going to I'm going to make this happen. OK, so upon receiving the collection, because my mom passed before my dad, and uh, when I got the collection, went home and retrieved the things that my mom had stored for my brother and my sisters to take with us because she kept everything, uh, everything from hand uh, pot holders and pictures and everything that she compiled in bins for us. But when I took these objects that were given to me from her or by my dad and her, I took them to my home and... Um, I took them to my home in Colchester, uh, Brantford, Connecticut, where I reside. And what I did was I laid them out and I did not realize exactly the scope of what I was looking at until several weeks later, as I'm transitioning out of the police department, that career. And I went back into my basement and I looked at everything on the floor and I realized that my mom had a story behind her collection. And so it wasn't until that point that I decided to uh, say, I got to, I got to continue this legacy, but I'm sure she had a story that she wanted to tell using her collection to uh, share with um, uh, folks in, in schools and civic organizations and even uh, communities. And so uh, that's when I decided that, you know, I would start packing this stuff up and knocking on doors in New Haven, Hartford, Bridgeport, Waterbury, and basically whoever wanted to, sit and talk to me and look at this, this as I called it back then, stuff. So uh, that was, I think, the defining moment when I realized that my mom had a story behind these objects. Wow, that's amazing. And for you to be able to put this whole thing together, uh, I, I can't tell you. I remember when uh, I think I, I was there with the uh, one of the groups there, one of the, I think the links. Yes. Trip there and uh I can't tell you the conversations and the uh, response from folks. You know, folks are just, you know, when we see certain things, sometimes we don't know the meaning. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you have anything close to you that you could show or. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and and speak to, you know, again. Yeah. I mean, there you go. We, we've seen that over the years on the box and. Uh, but we never really knew the, you know, some of us, but some of us didn't know the meaning behind it. So if you could just speak to uh, some of your collections and, and what, what, you know, what they meant. Yeah. So we, um, as I said, I've enhanced the collection twofold, twofold. And especially like the object that you just saw in my hand, those objects represent a time in our history where African-Americans were depicted as servants, um, slave, uh, uh, servants, butlers, and that sort of thing. But the ironic part about this is as uh, people, African-Americans, they collected those objects as well as white folks, but we collected them for more of a sentimental value. White folks collected those objects because they were dehumanizing, they were um, negative, and plus they it casted um, uh, all sorts of bias and, and bigotry to these and used to dehumanize people of color. Um, I tend to take these negative objects that we may sometimes um, interpret as being negative towards African-American uh, people and use them as an educational piece in talking about um, how, uh, how perception and stereotypes are, are, are born. And, uh, but over the years, uh, these pieces have um, actually been uh, um, conversation pieces, uh, especially that piece. But again, a lot of my, my 
um, foundation for what we're doing here is to discuss those hard things that we uh, have issues with today. And uh, both both sides, black and white, have difficult times, especially African-American people. They have a difficult time seeing this hard history. White folks um, these days are looking at it as taboo to even try to discuss or talk about because they want to be um, either sensitive or socially correct uh, um, when they talk about these objects. Here at this museum, we encourage open and free conversation because in order for us to move forward, we have to come from out of the dark and talk openly about what these objects represent and how uh, much of an impact they may have on either side of uh, the, the line there, whether you're black or whether you're white. So uh, these objects are very important. And I, and I don't think my mom realized that at the time, but I think through spirituality and divine intervention, um, she's invoking uh, those thoughts uh, every day as I come into this museum and we do tours in the museum as well as do outside presentations to organizations and schools. Wow. Now, if I uh, if I may, how how uh, where's your mom from? Your mom and my dad? mom is from my mom is from Camden, South Carolina, and that's a little bit inward inland. It's not on the coast. Um, my dad um, is from Fuquay, Farina, North Carolina, which is just outside Raleigh. Uh, my, my mom, as I said, and her seven brothers and sisters and my grandparents, they lived on a sharecropper's farm, which was a three-room uh, house, as you might see sometimes as you're venturing north, southbound on I-95. Once you get past the Mason-Dixon, you'll look out in the fields and you'll see these shacks that are out in the middle of these acres of land. So those were the type of uh, dwellings that she lived in, and uh, they had to work those farms uh, in order to stay there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to, I'm kind of thinking, I'm just going through uh, a couple of months ago, I, I went on a tour in uh, South Carolina and uh, the Hilton Head and around the, the Gullah Islands. And I went on a Gullah tour and the gentleman that uh, um, narrated everything, he was, he was phenomenal. He's from the Gullah Islands. He, uh, you know, he walked us through the whole journey. And, uh, and that's what I'm thinking about right now. I learned so much from that, that tour. It was one of the best tours I've ever been on. Mm -hmm. And the, the rich history, and you, know, you talk about sharecroppers, and but he spoke uh, in depth about you know folks where they came from, where they were picked up, you know the, where the uh, they brought us in and enslaved us. You know, um, if you could just speak to that a little bit, I appreciate. It. Yeah. So my my mom, although you know <laughs> she understands Gullah because they're descendants uh, that are relatives of hers, and if you're around folks. And we have them in New Haven, Connecticut, mm -hmm. and work with some folks who have uh, were entrenched in, in in their roots, or they say their roots are from <laughs> South Carolina. And, <laughs> excuse me. And so, um, if you're if you're fortunate enough, and you around that that group of people from the South, especially along the coastline, you will hear the Gullah dialect, and it's mm -hmm. very very fascinating, very interesting. And I guarantee you, you will not understand it because it has a mixture of Creole, Spanish, a little French, a little English, and uh, like a patois, as they would be, uh, as West Indian folks would be using it in their dialect, in their, their conversation. So it's a very complicated language. But again, um, my mom understood that and she understood the fact of being called a Geechee was not a bad thing because mm -hmm. uh, her diet, and even as she got older and came north and and raising a family, our diets consisted of rice, cabbage, fish, um, and uh, very rarely do we eat meat. And so, um, you know, that whole area in the South, it, it, it was it, it rich in culture, as you already witnessed by going on that tour. And, um, you know, the museum is, uh, we talk about that. We talk about the travels um, the, the transatlantic voyage or the middle passage is from the continent of Africa. And you'll see displayed in the museum where we recreated a hull of a slave ship. And in that hull of a slave ship, have you seen Gary yourself? It, it maps and it tracks um, how many souls were taken, kidnapped yeah. and uh, from the continent and, and dropped off all, all across the, this world. But if you look at the map and see the journey from Africa 
all the way to the south of uh, South Carolina, where it was the hub and the port of uh, slaves and then becoming enslaved were brought into. Um, it's, it's astounding um, to see the traffic, not only in South Carolina, but along the Caribbean as well. And uh, one of the things that I'm excited about with the museum is that we will be including uh, the Latinx um, uh, uh, culture and history in this museum because we do get a, lot, a, a, a enormous uh, amount of um, traffic from uh, Hispanic folks that come in to see this exhibit. And a lot of them, you know, they're bewildered when we don't expound and talk about uh, the Latinx culture being in, uh, involved or integrated into um, the uh, African uh, culture. And we now are looking to uh, intense, intensify that, those, these exhibits in the museum because the Hispanic culture and spirituality and food and music and dance is so aligned to Africa and the, the or, original um, uh, uh, ancestors who have uh, made it successfully, and I say successfully, not with any type of fanfare or glee, but painfully made it across the Atlantic to um, the islands and uh, their strong culture and history was enmeshed into the um, hybrid of that, uh, those, those islands. So when you mention that, so you, you're looking at, you look at some of the Caribbean islands, uh, you know, when you think of the islands where folks were, were dropped off and, and enslaved and can you just name some of them? I mean, you, you yeah. spoke. Puerto Rico, uh, Haiti, um, um, uh, Haiti, uh, St. Martin's, uh, mm -hmm. all of the islands that we will visit today as tourists, right? Mm -hmm. and we will vacation there. It's kind of like uh, the bastion of uh, going to uh, some sort of Mecca where it, it, it was, uh, a, it's a great place. But, um, and and I, I have a, a, a fellow colleague, retired police uh, supervisor who's from, you might know her, she's from uh, St. Martin's, uh, mm. Helen, Lieutenant uh, Captain Pat Hellinger. And she's oh, wow. From, yep, Patty's from, uh, from hey uh from St. Martin's and she's very active in that uh, St. Martin the island in government and one of the things that um we're working on is trying to get me to get there to uh spread some of this information about um uh slavery and and uh, uh the the whole industry uh what was going on here in the states so St. Martin's is one of those islands Haiti Jamaica um because they were under European or British rule and uh, and where did, where did slavery uh, evolve from? Basically, I mean, we what we could say it goes back as far as the uh, before the pyramids. That's correct, but um, it was more pronounced um, uh, as it evolved from England, um, mm. and the slave trade was very strong from England, and uh, then it branched out. But the islands are heavily influenced with uh, African uh, culture and history. <clears throat> Now, um, are you doing, are you traveling, are you going to different schools and, and sharing your, your uh, knowledge in uh, the history of, uh, well, I'm, I'm still a student. So when okay. you say knowledge, I want to, I want to make sure, and I should have prefaced this before, I am not an expert, right? And I don't, I don't hold any degrees in anthropology or uh, uh, um, African-American history. I am a, a, I'm passionate. I'm, I'm I love our history, I'm still learning. Um, when folks come through this museum, um, they drop uh, nuggets of, uh, of intellect on our history. So I, I'm constantly learning. But to, to that question, we do reach out to um, elementary, junior high schools, high schools, colleges, and as I said earlier, to whoever feels the need that they want to um, uh, impact, use this uh, museum as a tool or a vehicle to help in their curriculums. Um, and one of the things that uh, I'm proud to say is that we have, being that I come from 25 plus years in law enforcement, and with the increase of uh, police versus black and brown citizens, I have used this museum and some of its pieces to talk about um, perception of how um, when a police officer uh, violates 
the civil rights or the lives of African-American brown folks, this is how they're perceived. So I go into these academies and I go into these police departments and I do these programs where we discuss, um, you know, what, how you are perceived and why you are not trusted in our urban communities. And we, we talk about this and then I, I show them some of the objects that, um, would uh would make a, a black or brown person not be trustful trustful of you and uh nine times out of ten it it resonates and what it does is it gives these um these officers another um tool to put in their their tool their utility belt to help them do their job better when they are encountering people of color um so we've we've worked in east haven police department when unfortunately that whole situation occurred in that community um, years ago. And we were still young at the time, and we were asked by the uh, State Department to go in and uh, do several days of a program, in which we did. And uh, we're connected to Bridgeport Police Department. And we just uh, had a couple um, workshops uh, at the City of New Haven uh, Training Academy as well. So this museum just isn't a place where we have a bunch of stuff. We use this museum to help teachers in building their curriculums, especially as uh, it, this, these courses, AP courses and African-American history is not a required course, but it's called an elective, which I think it should be required on the educational level in order to graduate. But not, needless to say, this um, museum serves as a, um, a tool for teachers to enhance their curriculums, but also their knowledge and teaching their students uh, when it comes time to talk about African-American history. Wow, so that, that goes to my next point, you know, the importance of uh, African-American history and how relevant it is to what we're experiencing today, you know, what we're seeing today in today's society. You know, sometimes I run into folks who say, uh, let, uh, let the past be the past or, you know, that, that that's, doesn't make that, sense that was then that was then this is now that's right so when i hear that it's just so and, and what we're experiencing today it just seems like we're set we're possibly setting folks up if we don't know our history then that puts us in a place where we're where uh we don't know what direction to go in if we don't know where we came from we don't know what, what direction to go in so um i'm constantly when i speak to some of the folks that i mentor um you know, knowing the history, I show them, I, I share all the books that I have. Uh, I ask them to really look into like Paul Robeson, his journey. Um, there's so many heroes and sheroes that we have. Um, you know, if they watch the new book, Harriet, um, her journey, you know, there's a, a woman that she escaped and then she went back, I think, what, 30 times to save more yeah. folks. And, through those swamps and I wouldn't, I don't, you know, I know with the, looking at those swamps and going through the, the little tours that I go on, I, I would have never uh, been able to do that. So I'm just, I think about the, the, uh, the courage and the well, fortitude and faith, faith, um, having that faith and, and, and that strength to persevere and move through all that mess. Uh, it's just, uh, I, I just don't know. I have to, you know, I thank God for their strength and what they, the foundation they laid for us. Um, so if we want to, if we go back to, again, the importance of our history and how relevant it is to today. Yeah. So, you know, I, I tell folks to what you just said, every time we have a group of people that come through here or organization or schools that come through or individuals, we try to get out here and do these tours. We don't leave, let folks walk through the front door and just randomly walk through because you can interpret, and this is very, very sensitive, but difficult history for people to, uh, uh, to understand. And so they need some sort of assistance on, on the motivation of this and certain areas in this museum that they need explanation. And when you talk about people coming through the museum, and they look like you and I, and they automatically say, that was then, this is now, I know all this history because I lived it. I tell them, you didn't live this history because if you did, you and I can go out and make some money because that tells me that you uh, 
you uh, are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which we all know what that means. And that tells me that you were around that period of time, slavery, early Jim Crow. So this history is hard for you. So I say we got to stop making excuses for why we do not want to see more of this history. But I often tell folks that when they finish going through this museum and we go into a space we call the decade space where we honor and celebrate those black heroes and sheroes who have defied Jim Crow, defied uh, discrimination, bigotry. And I say those folks on the wall there that we see, the Michael Jordans, the Beyonce's, the Jay-Z's, the Magic Johnson's and so forth, Denzel, Spike Lee's, they're standing on some very, very tall, broad shoulders as I and you are, right? Because <clears throat> think about 50, 60 years ago, even here in Stratford, Connecticut, I would not be here, right? And we know that the demographics were very different in this community as well as various communities around the state of Connecticut. <clears throat> so I use this, this museum as a epidemiology study often because it is, as I called, a litmus test, a litmus test to see our knowledge, our acceptance, and, um, and, and if we are going to support, and if we're going to talk about uh, evening the playing field, or if we're talking about um, trying to change the minds of people, we have to look at the things that are, are, are important and helping to change those minds to make lives better for African-American folks instead of sitting back, waiting for things to come our way. And so that's why one of the motivating factors here was we don't have an African-American history. We have no, no institution to tell our narrative. The closest narrative that we can tell is on the Yale campus, Yale University campus, the Gelman Center. They, those folks do some good work there, right? They do a lot of academic research work, right? And they delve into the past. But I think we are different from the Gelman Center, who has probably outfunded us heads and heads and shoulders. But <laughs> we bring our history across the board, and we just don't focus on one area, which is the migration or the migratory practices of uh, Africans that were kidnapped from Africa, taken from the continent and dispersed all across the world. So we get in some really heavy, deep conversations and discussions. Had a deep discussion yesterday for 45 minutes with the secretary vice president of Yale, um, Miss uh, Kimberly um, Goff Cruz. And uh, it was very entertaining, but very enlightening. And I learned a lot. Um, of what Yale is doing. So they're doing a lot of work there, but I think there's more work that can be done. And I think uh, with a strong collaboration and partnership, um, this whole thing can work out because this museum has Yale Connection, right? Mm -hmm. and the Yale Connection is John W. Sterling. I got to say that because his law firm, 172 years later, decided to want to be the first pillar to give us seed money to start this museum. And if we all don't know who John W. Sterling is or was, he was a, um, a, uh, uh, a graduate of Yale University. He lived, comes from this community in Stratford. Um, and when he graduated in 1865, which was profound because we all know that the, uh, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation was signed, so to speak, uh, maybe a decade later, he co-founded the law firm of Sherman and Sterling LLP. Now, John wow. Sterling was the same, is the same John Sterling that donated $15 million to Yale University, which built the Sterling Memorial Library, built the law school at uh, Yale, and the same office on the corner of Grove and um, Grove and um, Temple, mm -hmm. where I was sitting with the, the secretary of Yale yesterday. So we have rich history with Yale, and there is a nexus. Even though we're not in New Haven, there is a nexus. And we will be moving into John W. Sterling's childhood home, which is a 9,000 square foot mansion in the historic resident uh, and by next year this time. Wow. And the last part of this is that there's a Yale connection because Colchester, my hometown where I come from, we have now started the conversation and we're in the developing plans of bringing the second African-American History Museum to Connecticut. Who'd ever thunk it? I mean, when it rains, it pours, right? But you know what? 
I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not crying over the fact that, uh, you know, we have an opportunity to bring two institutions for learning and understanding and being a part of what we're trying to do and bridging the gap and telling the, our narrative. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure your parents are just smiling in heaven. That, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, or, or, or they're saying, you know, boy, you, we hope you didn't bite off more than you can chew. But you know <laughs> what? It, it keeps me it keeps me busy. It keeps me alert. It keeps me alive. And, and you know, it's uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. But, uh, you know, you can't beat what's getting ready, getting ready to happen here. And those both both institutions are going to serve everybody in the state of Connecticut, not just Colchester or Stratford, but they're going to be destinations where you can have receptions, you can bring folks when they come to town, you don't oh. have to bring them to, you know, the do drop in and have a little reception at the Omni, nothing wrong with the Omni, but we'd like to have things that uh, relate and look like who we are and what we have achieved. So that was one of the reasons why um, also that I, I feel we need to have uh, a, a building of some sort or an institution that we all can uh, cherish and, and uh, respect. Wow, that's 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 again, that's amazing, and thank you. Um, uh, next, my next question is: uh, out of all your collections, um, or your pieces, uh, which one stands out the most? If there is one in particular, that's that. You know what, Gary? I I got to tell you, whenever I have been interviewed or folks have come to this museum and the cameras, and I think Keith Koontz asked me that last week. Mm -hmm. because Channel 8 is very involved with us and they're going to be doing a segment on Black History Month and taping uh, next week for Black History Month here. So the production crew will be here um, uh -huh. for that. Um, he asked me that question. Others have asked me that question. It's kind of like when you ask a mother and she has several children, <laughs> who's her favorite child, right? The baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that that was a loaded question, but I hope I hope I can answer. They're they're all significant. They're all important. Um, from the smallest thing that I showed you just now to the the most hideous thing that sits in my office. That uh, you know, when you came, you when you came and sat down, uh, you didn't expect to see a a, a mannequin with a, a hood and a robe and a sash on it. And I uh, saw so you do a double take, like, man, what's up with this? <laughs> so even that ugly, hideous, and despicable object uh, we're alluding to is a uh, vintage post-Civil War Ku Klux Klan hood and robe that was left here in a box. And uh, when we opened the box, um, it said, your museum can tell this story better than my family. So we appreciate the family. If you're listening to us, um, thank you for that object. But um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, every piece has, has a, a meaning a strong meaning, but if you were to ask me which was the most inspirational exhibit uh, would be the Tuskegee Airmen exhibit. Uh, because, uh, you know, these young men, they defied Jim Crow, left their universities, HBCU universities. Some of them graduated, some of them just left during when World War II broke out. And uh, they were dealing with Jim Crow. And if we know our HBCUs, they're located in the South. And uh, the the humiliation they had to go through, but when the war broke out, they felt they were patriotic enough that uh, perhaps if they enlisted in the war and uh, brought democracy to those countries uh, to stamp out fascism, um, that they would be perceived and looked at as uh, heroes and people who were just not second-class citizens any longer. But unbeknownst to them, when they got into the European theaters in Europe, they realized that Jim Crow was alive and well, where they were defied uh, access to um, the simple, the, 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 the amenities that officers, because these were officers, they weren't, uh, they were in college. They were mm -hmm. going, through, they literally would have been going through OC, uh, OCI, Officer Candidate School, OCS School, and uh, they were reduced to sweeping floors, driving, chauffeur, chauffeuring, kitchen patrol, digging latrines. Um, but uh, again, my uh, 
I would say my most inspirational exhibit every morning that I have to pass in order to come up to my office is that exhibit. And I look at those young men and the determination in their eyes and saying, you know what, we will fight Jim Crow here in the United States as well as in Europe. And uh, only to know when they came back, they were reduced to sitting in cattle cars uh, while the German POWs that the camps were in the South, they were sitting in uh, the German POWs were sitting in passenger vehicles with uh, seats and everything while the, um, these gentlemen were sitting on crates and uh, cattle cars. So long story short, I, I would say that that would be a, a favorite exhibit, but also inspiring and motivating exhibit. Wow. So when you speak of Jim Crow, um, I've come across a few folks, uh, young and old, that really weren't, uh, didn't know what Jim Crow me, meant. Uh, what would you say to them? If you could just, I know there's so much to it, but if you could. I'm going to, I'm going to simplify it. Don't think that Jim Crow. All right. First of all, we need to define Jim Crow was not a, a real person, right? Mm -hmm. Jim Crow was an exaggerated, but a, 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 a word that was used to keep blacks and whites from um, integrating. And those laws were real in signs. They were real in words and so forth. But, to put a little bit more context to this, how close Jim Crow was and is to us. And uh, I gotta say this, Jim Crow is alive and well, which was in my period 11 years ago, was James Crow Esquire, which was Jim Crow's, is now Jim Crow's nephew or grandson. Jim Crow was alive and well in New Haven at church and chapel Starbucks with me 11 years ago. As a uniformed African-American police officer, I was not allowed to use the bathroom at Starbucks at, at 6, 30, 7 o'clock in the morning with a white partner. I was told that the key was in the safe and the key would not be taken out of the safe until after 12 o'clock. And only to learn, because I didn't want to use the color of my, my uniform and badge to insist on getting a key, I left. Came back five minutes later. My partner didn't know I left and told me, he said, Fletch, you could use the bathroom. Why did you go out there? I said, because... The woman there told me the key was in the safe. He said, that's odd because five minutes ago, this white gentleman in a black suit, white, white shirt and red tie gave her the key back and she put it in her apron. And so when I asked her about it, she looked at me and didn't mean an answer. Long story, long and short of the story, I went through the legal stuff, but then I decided to pull the case off the docket before Starbucks out in Seattle, Washington found out. And next thing I knew, that uh, they were sending an email stating that we understand something happened, but we're not going to admit it. So in 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 lieu of your inconvenience, here's $3,000. But in order for you to get the $3,000, you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement never to talk about the case. Of course, I didn't take the money and I didn't sign non-disclosure because in my wisdom, in my mind, spiritually, I knew that I would be able to talk about Starbucks down the road which was about 11, 12 years ago. And uh, if I had taken that money, I would not be able to talk about this case right now. So when we talk about Jim Crow, that's as close as Jim Crow, I think. One of the cases I may have come with Jim Crow was with this. But for our young people, don't think for one moment that those same laws would not apply to you in the year of 2024. You may not see it so obvious, but it, it is done. It will be done in, in its practice as you and I are talking now, Gary. So um, those are Jim Crow laws. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so if you could speak to some of your future plans and uh, uh, your past exhibits, uh, you, know, you know, just talk a little bit about uh, what's so up. The, so the future plan is this. We're working on the segment. Um, to uh, catapult uh, the museum to um, a destination, but not only for Connecticut, but for the country to look at how this uh, museum is evolving. So we're in a community where the politics and the demographics don't line up with mine, but the people who are in charge in this community have put their politics aside, put their cultures aside and said, you know what, we really want this community. We want this in our community. We believe it is a start to something big. And so what I've been working on is getting a bipartisan relationship with 
the community, as well as our state legislators, which is working, which is giving us the attention because in the climate that we are today in the United States, the politics and everything is polarized, the right versus the left, the left versus the right, black versus white, white versus black, right? So what this museum is showing, as I said earlier, it's a litmus test, but the litmus test is turning out to be a positive because we have bipartisan um, uh, working, bipartisan politics working together in terms of trying to sustain this museum. And it, because it's here, it's not giving anyone a feather in the cap, right? It's not making the Republican side look great. It's not making the Democrat side look great. But in, in, in actuality, this community is galvanizing. But the schools, there's two high schools here, Bunnell and Stratford. There's a private school here. Fairfield Prep is now involved with us. And so my goal is for the future is to connect all of our schools. I don't care how far they are, how close they are. I want them to be able to utilize this museum as a resource, as a place where they can uh, have their students come here, do research, come in contact with artifacts that they will never, ever see up close and personal unless they are working within that, that venue. So we, 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 we are strong in working with the youth. And, um, and so, I mean, we're we're just trying to uh, sustain. I mean, it's it's hard, you know. I, I need more of our our people to be involved and support this. Support this like you would support going to a Beyonce concert or Jay Z concert, right? Open your checkbooks now. I'm pleading. I'm begging, right? Um, and and you know, we're gonna we're gonna sustain. We're gonna make this work. And you know, we're applying for grants. That's the uh, other goal we're doing. We're on a um, a major uh, campaign fund funding for this museum as well as the other museum. We have a lot of grants that are in, but we we need that support financially. Um, but we also need bodies here too, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's saying you have to have a degree in African-American history. We have a, a diverse group of people that work here from black, white, Hispanic, uh, women, men, retired people are willing to work, roll their sleeves up. And the great thing is that we have some great supporters of the museum in terms of partnerships with Wells Fargo Bank, Subway Foundation, which I give big shout out for because they don't give us anything in, in money-wise, but they give us money, I gave us certificates or cards to feed our students when they volunteer here, because I believe in not just having them come here and sit and do things uh, that were arbitrarily mean nothing. I have them come here and they learn everything from A to Z. And at the end, uh, towards the end of the day, we feed them. And uh, I thank Subway for that. And it's a plug, yeah, um, because um, we get kids here that volunteer that we don't know their home life. And I have one story to tell real quickly is that uh, our volunteers, they're honor students, black and white and Hispanic. They are honor students. And we have two that have now are freshmen at HBCUs. They wow. were here. But uh, during Christmas, when we came back from break Christmas, we were closed a couple of days and one of my volunteers showed up and they show up too on Saturday mornings. And I said, how was your, how was your Christmas? And she said, oh, it was good. I said, uh, did you eat a lot? And she looked at me and she said, no. I said, why? She said, I don't know. My parents didn't make Christmas. And so I said, what did you do? She said, I went to McDonald's and bought something that broke my heart. And, um, you know, and, and, and again, we don't know the, the challenges economically that some of our kids come from, but um, if I can give them something to eat when they're here, I know I can rest when I go home because uh, it's nothing like not having any food. And I'm a little emotional about it because this is a good child, um, senior, and um, it's just sad. And uh, we can do more. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Uh, I'm, I'm making that pledge to everybody that might be watching this. We can do more. And I'm trying to do what I can do, but this is not about Jeff Fletcher and his family. It's bigger than Jeff Fletcher. And I just want people to know that. Wow, wow. Well, I mean, when you, you spoke of the, the young the student you had uh, 
you let me know if there's anything we could do, even if we could uh, set up with some of my uh, partners, if we could set up a, a dinner or anything yeah. just to kind of bring it home. It's, uh, uh, you know, I speak to, I talk to young folks every day and, and folks, we forget about our, our blessings sometime and, and don't realize yeah. the, uh, you know, we're quick to judge, but we don't realize what the young folks are going through before they get to school um, or during the holidays when they don't have those parents um, or families. Um, right. And that's what it's all about. We talk about humanity and uh, helping others is, and, and I've always, that's what my parents have always taught us. Right. Um, and uh, <laughs> wow, that's, that's deep. Man. <laughs> yeah. And, and the yeah. thing I want to tell, I think I want to tell folks, because there are people out here that don't understand how a 501c3 works, right? Mm -hmm. If you were to write a check to the museum, and I'm making the plug, the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American History Museum, right? When you come here, that money goes in, this is the foundation, right? That money will not see anything, any part of me or my pockets. It goes straight into this museum, and we do have an accountant that keeps an eye on every penny that comes into this museum. I don't take a salary. Right. Because I don't believe in it right now. He, he's dying because I'm not taking a salary. Um, I refuse to until I know that this, these museums are going to be strong. They're going to be able to stand up and then I might request a dollar. Right. But I put in more money than I've received on the outside. But that's OK. Um, we still can keep the lights and the heat on. That's all that matters to me. But. That money does not see my pockets. It sees the, the foundation. And that's where that money goes to sustain this, this building as well as the next one coming. Um, because there are folks out there, Fletcher, man, you you hitting the big. Fletcher ain't hitting the big. You don't get rich off of 501c3. Mm -hmm. So I, I just had to say that. And I know it, it took some of the, the light off of my previous conversation I just had about that young lady. But um, mm -hmm. that's what this is about. Yeah, well, uh, you, you definitely have uh, succeeded, and I see you're still moving. And if you could just speak to some of your, your tour schedules and your hours. Oh, events. Yeah. Well, so my admin person just left. I, you know, she was under the weather, so I had to throw her out. Uh, we, went <laughs> over my, we go over my calendar every week because it changes, right? And uh, we have plateaued from – kind of like leaving the basement. Now we're kind of like on the first floor. Now we're starting to move to the second floor in our second year, going into our uh, third year rather. And um, we're blossoming. So upcoming schedule is uh, I'll be on the road um, mm -hmm. presenting to as far away as Cornwall, Connecticut, Preston, Connecticut, Norwich, uh, Rocky Hill. Um, and so, uh, I'm on the road uh, starting the beginning of the month, but also coming back here um, doing uh, organizations and groups uh, later in the afternoon. Um, so I can be in Colchester at nine, but I'll be back here by two. And then I'll be at a library at six. Um, so the upcoming schedule is going to be really critical because we're spending two weeks as we have been the last three years, two years in Middletown, Connecticut. I will be doing 13 schools in the city of Middletown, plus the high school. And those are two a days. Two a days, I go in at 9, finish at 10.30, take a break for about an hour. I hit another school, and I keep going for two weeks straight. And um, uh, then I'll, I'm the keynote speaker next week. I'm sorry, moderator next week um, for the MLK um uh, day down here in Stratford at the Baldwin Center. So, um, you know, next month is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm taking a lot of vitamins, trying to get <laughs> as much as I can and uh, keep my fingers crossed because when it's all said and done by the end, middle of March, um, I, I'll, I'll be able to sit back, but sit back for a day and then pick it back up again. So um, I'd rather be busy as opposed to not busy. And be known this museum or these museums being known as a place that people are now starting to realize that, um, you know, they can use us. Wow. So I'll be remember. I just wanted to mention too, I forgot a, there's a music part of your museum too. Um, 
that I really was taken back as we, as you're, you're finishing up your tour. If you could speak to that briefly, we have two minutes left. Yeah, I see that real quick, and thank you for that. So, yeah, the last part of the tour is uh, called the Decades Room. And when you walk into that space, um, we purposely have music blaring and blazing only because um, you we've drug you through the difficult parts of this museum. It's heavy stuff, hard stuff, but we want you to leave on a positive note. So when you walk into that last space, you're going to see celebrity pictures. You're going to see objects that my parents uh, uh, had, music. My dad's guitars, who couldn't play, but um, one uh, uh, one note. But needless to say, and I see we're running out of time real quickly here. That music is that room is cathartic, and we want folks to um, leave on a happy note. And we call it the end to the beginning, right? Because we will be picking up on positive accolades of African Americans moving to the bigger museum. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I can't tell you enough. I, I thank you. Thank you for your time. For having me. I uh, encourage everybody. You know, the address of the museum is 952 East Broadway, Stratford, Connecticut. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking about the guitar. Yeah. I yeah. Look, yeah. look up on the wall. And that, you said that was your dad's guitar. Both um, of them. There's two of them. He has six of them. We only put two up. He couldn't read a lick of music, but if you put him in a room by himself for about 45 <laughs> minutes an hour, you come back and you swear he was either the musician, the artist, or part of the band. So he was he was quite talented. As we, most African-American folks are, we don't do things by theory. We pick up on sight and hearing and tone. Wow. Yeah, that's a, it's amazing. Again, folks, if you're going to close out in a minute, uh, I... Uh... I can't thank you enough for sharing your journey and, and sharing your 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 museum with everyone. Um, I look forward to the museum in Colchester, and I think you have another one. Um, is there another project you're working on? Um, God, uh, as as of Colchester and Stratford building uh, the other the other museum out by next year will be in the bigger museum. Twenty twenty five will be in the Colchester Museum. So. Uh, you know, and the hours here are Monday, Wednesdays, Thursdays, 10 to 3. Those are our winter hours. And on Saturdays, 10 to 3. Um, and we're closed on, but I'm here every day. So if you drive by and you happen to be in the area and you see vehicles in the driveway, um, just come on up, ring the bell, and somebody will let you in. We're not that big where we can't let folks come in on our days off. Wow, that's amazing. Um, again, um I just want to say uh, goodbye and, and thank everyone for joining in. And thank you, Jeff. And Thank you, Gary. Appreciate uh, thank it. Thank you. Uh, and and, and we're going to get you in. We got We got another exhibit, another conversation we got to talk about enshrining you. Yeah. Thank you, sir. As I got Appreciate it. Another rhythm for y'all to listen. Right. I'm never quitting Thank on my mission. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition. This yep. new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you're stressing, but you're right. going with kind of blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open All right. Have a good day. All right, man. Your final All right. Take care. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down. I just got to get up, get up. Yeah. Cause this is my role. You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 SM, your home for community radio.